Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. I don't want to be like them. Locked in a prison. Did they forgot that they're in? What prison? Yes. I am sensing a lack of focus. You didn't keep in touch with Cindy at all after graduation? She hasn't even crossed my mind in 15 years. I do remember Cindy Williams. She just vanished. That was the time when that awful drug went round the school. Can't shake the feeling. Something bad happened to her. One night we were all in Merck. What does it do to you? gotta go back. We gotta try to remember what happened to her that night. This is it. I swear it happened. Let's leave. Let's just go. I was supposed to be here. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 350. Releasing in the US on June 4 in select theaters and video on demand is Flashback, a mind-bending mystery thriller that stars Dylan O'Brien as Fred, a young man whose life is thrown into disarray when he is plagued with horrific visions of a girl who vanished in high school. Also starring Micah Monroe and Emery Cohen, Flashback is an original and uncompromising work that is as haunting as it is heartbreaking. And I'm happy to say joining me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is a writer and director of Flashback, Christopher McBride. Christopher, I thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Matt. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. You know, it's really interesting. I've been doing a bit of research um, on yourself and on this movie as well. This screenplay for Flashback, this was actually one of the first screenplays you ever wrote. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I wrote this. Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to say maybe even 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was one of the very first scripts I ever wrote. I, I was not working as a filmmaker. I, you know, I had made a couple short films. It was it was when I was still learning how to do everything, basically. And uh, but it was the first script I wrote that I, I was proud of. And it was the first one I started showing to people. And uh uh, yeah, and it it, it uh, I I always thought it was too weird to get made and too abstract and it, you know it didn't fit into any genre cleanly and uh, so it it sort of sat around while I did another film and and developed a whole bunch of other ones and um, yeah just a couple of years ago I I sort of got up the courage to show it to more people and was very surprised when people started responding to it and and, and enjoying it. It's an interesting movie that it has a lot of different elements to it. it. It delves into time, memory, venturing into adulthood. I'm curious, though, what was the initial idea that really sparked the creation of this story? Yeah, you know, it's funny because it was so long ago, it's, it's sometimes hard to track down the exact genesis moment. I know that uh, when I was, again, years ago, when I was first learning how to write, the very first script I ever wrote, which you can't even really call a script, was this crazy big, like, 300-page manifestos is basically like every idea I had for a movie I put into this one script. And then that 
I eventually realized that was the work of a madman and mm. uh, it, it, it spiraled off. The ideas in it spiraled off into their own individual scripts. And one of those scripts became Flashback. And, uh, you know, I think at the, the heart of it, it was really, um, it was my desire to explore um, a philosophical question, which is, you know, in many ways, the oldest philosophical question, which is just, is free will a real thing? And does free will exist? And mm-hmm. is, is any, does any choice we make actually come from us being truly free or, you know, our, is our very decision-making process um, so tainted with the influence of external forces that we can never actually make a choice ourselves. And so it's this really sort of, um, you know, it's a philosophical question that I then sort of had to figure out how to translate into a story and into a narrative with characters and, um, and make it interesting and exciting and stuff. And, uh, but I, I think that was sort of the genesis of it was just that, that wanting to explore that idea. And, and then that eventually became, you know, exploring this character who on the surface, um, you know, Fred Fittell has a normal life and everything's fine, but he, he feels that he's not living the life he's supposed to be living. He feels that there was another path he was supposed to take and sort of just missed. And, and then him kind of going backwards and, and sort of trying to figure out where that fork in the road was and see if he can still go back. Film is such a great cast. I, I mentioned in my um, intro, Dad Dylan O'Brien stars in the movie. I think it's the best performance he's put the screen on to date so far. How did he get involved in the movie, and what was it like directing him, him in this film? Yeah, he. So he um, he was one. He we cast him very early. He was one of the first people we went to. Um, he responded immediately to the script. He got it. He totally understood it. Um, And that's a big thing, you know, like a lot of people could read the script for this film and be like, what on earth is this? You know, like, this is crazy, but he completely got it. He got the character and we were able to talk about it and I could tell he totally got it. And, um, you know, I, I knew Dylan through the Maze Runner movies and I, you know, once I knew he was interested, I, you know, devoured everything I could get my hands on, um, that he was in. I could tell he was a good actor and I could tell that, you know, he, he had never done a movie like this. I mean, I don't know if anyone's done a movie exactly like this, but, um, he, uh, I, I had a really good sense that he was going to be great in it, but I, you know, of course I wasn't sure. And then, um, uh, you know, when we started shooting the very first day, the very first scene, I could tell he was going to knock it out of the park. Like he just, um, just became Fred, you know, and, uh, and I, it's nice of you to say that, that you think it's his best performance. I agree. I think, um, I think he's incredible in it. And uh, not only is he like, you know, he's able to go to all these different crazy emotional places in the film, um, but he's able to do it in different timelines. So when he's younger, when he's older and, and because the, the narrative is somewhat abstract, and he's in these very strange situations, you know, he, his performance kind of always grounds it and grounds the audience. And, and so the, you know, the audience is experiencing these very strange, surreal things through Dylan's eyes and because he's so good and he's relatable and he's, he's just, uh, you're, you're, you're able to feel what he's feeling. You know, he, he, he really saves the film and, and, you know, guides the audience through it. And yeah, I, uh, I've said it before, like we, we would have been screwed a hundred times if it weren't for Dylan. Like he saved this film with how good he was. And uh, not only is he great, but he's, he's so he's, he's been on sets his whole life. So he really knows the technical side of filmmaking. Um, his father, you know, worked in films and I, I think he was a camera person or something like that. And so he's, he's been around it his whole life. So he, 
he could he could reach these really interesting emotional places, but then simultaneously understand that the light from our lights wasn't hitting his eyes the right way and naturally tilt his head so that the light would hit his eye without me or the DP even telling him to do that. You know, like he had such an understanding of the technical side of things as well as, you know, really knocking out of the park performance wise. So yeah, I love him. I think he's great. He's a great person. And um, it was really like a dream, you know, collaboration. You know, this is an independent production. We're talking about Huey Flashback. Once you get a name like a Dylan O'Brien or a Micah Monroe attached to your movie, what does that do to the making of that film? Is it all of a sudden um, this struggling ship is just turned into like a rocket ship and off it goes um, with names attached like that to it? Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. I mean, it becomes real at that point, you know, like there's there's so many films, um, you know, in development, whether in Hollywood or independent or somewhere in the middle and, you know, um, even big films that are set up at, you know, I've, 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 I have a whole bunch of films that are in development at studios, you know, big Hollywood studios and things. And, you know, they don't really become real until you get an actor attached. And then everyone is like, oh, this is a movie that's going to probably get made. So, yeah. So, this, you know, the second, um, you know, Dylan liked the film and got involved. Yeah. It goes from being this, this strange little indie that's, you know, mm, how are we going to get funding for that uh, to, oh, this is real, you know, and, and, you know, people are, are also, um, uh, it's not only just because actors mean box office and actors, you know, get things greenlit. It's also because mm-hmm. oftentimes there's so many people in the film industry who uh, don't want to be the first person to admit they either like or dislike something. They always sort of want to play it safe. And as soon as someone, an actor usually says, this is good. I like this and puts their sort of stamp, their opinion on it. Then everyone else goes, Oh yeah, it is good. It is good. It is good. You know, and they're always waiting for that first other person. Cause of course the writer and the filmmaker thinks it's good, but uh, you know, it's that one big outside source, you know, sort of validating it um, uh, that that then gets everyone else to jump on. So you you put it perfectly uh, and and way less long winded than I just did. But yeah, it's uh, it, it turns into a rocket ship and it becomes real as soon as as soon as Dylan gets involved. You mentioned about the nature of free will in regards to a, a concept that really drew you to writing on the story. Something that I took from the film was the nature of time, um, especially in regards to the character of Fred. I, I, I think I'm pretty sure in the movie he's turning 30. Um, it's his transition from his 20s into his new era of adulthood. He's engaged. He's got a new apartment. He's got a new job. But then he starts looking back. You know, things are happening. I don't want to get too much into that because it's going to spoiler territory. And it's something that I can really, really kind of attach myself to. I'm turning 40 next month. So I'm already through my 30s. So I'm going through another kind of transition of adulthood. You yourself, Christopher, when you were writing this script, maybe even when you were making it, did you kind of look at that kind of concept of time? And as we get older, how we tend to look back and we try to analyze things a little more, um, maybe because we can't get that time back, we can't change things. Is, is that something that really kind of drew you as well uh, when in, when making a movie, watching a movie? Is that something that people have even talked to you about in regards to the film? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, I know I'm constantly, and I, I think most people do this, you're, you're constantly, especially as you get older, you sort of being amazed at how old you are and sort of like, I can't believe I'm now this age, you mm. know, and I can't believe, you know, in theory, this much of my life has gone past and, you know, your own mortality starts becoming less of an abstract thought and, and more concrete and more real as, as a thing that's approaching. And so, it, and then that causes you to re-examine everything you're doing and are you making the most of your time? And uh, 
just, you know, how, and of course, you know, how we perceive time changes throughout our lives. And when you're young, you know, a, a summer is, is, is infinite, but you know, when you're older, a summer whips by in two seconds and um, it's, so it's sort of speeding up as, as it goes along. And uh, yeah, you know, those are, those are definitely things I think about and, and those emotions of sort of nostalgia and, you know, wondering, you know, what could have been and, and uh, you know, what would you make different choices if you went back? I think there's something, there's a bit of wish fulfillment in there. Um, Cause I think we all experience that to some degree. And, um, and yeah, in terms of like perceiving time, you know, that's sort of another thing at the heart of the story, which is the, you know, the idea that t- perceiving time in a linear fashion and perceiving it as something that necessarily only moves forward and goes A to B to C you know, that's something that we have to learn, you know, and, it, you know, if you, whether it's Stephen Hawking or whatever, you know, the whole concept of, of relativity and, you know, times, time is something that is, can be bent and is malleable and it, it depends on how we perceive it. You know, uh, it's not just a concrete thing that only necessarily flows or operates in one way. And so my kind of idea at the core of the story was, you know, that that's, that perception of time as a linear phenomenon is something that we have to be taught. It's something that we learn when we're very young um, is how to sort of perceive consequence. And through perceiving consequence, we, we, we learn future and past and, uh, and it just becomes ingrained in us. And it's the only way we can perceive time our entire lives. But, you know, what if, you know, what if there was a drug, what if there was something that could sort of cleanse that out of you could sort of um, take that education away from you um, and then what, how would you perceive time then if, if your sort of training on how to perceive time as linear, you know, was mm-hmm. stripped from you? Uh, so yeah, that's, you know, that's sort of at the heart of the story. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, terrifying thing that all human beings are always grappling with is just, you know, um, God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that as well. <laughs> um, it's really interesting in regards to time, the last, the last movie that you released was a conspiracy. I think that was back in 2013. Um, mm-hmm. Just the nature of watching films, these uh, how much it's changed since then to now. And I think releasing this movie now in 2021 is really a positive thing, just in the way that people watch films, especially in the streaming generation, because this is a movie in flashback that demands repeated viewings. I think this is a kind of film that people are going to watch, not to say they're not going to watch in theatres because it looks terrific and it's edited great and the music's great and everything's cool, but watching it especially on like um, at home, uh, either streaming or on DVD or Blu-ray, I think that's going to have a lot of repeated viewings. Are you prepared for a lot of people to watch this film over and over and over? Are you prepared kind of like with the conspiracy of people like doing their own little analysis of their own kind of theories, diving into the rabbit hole that this film will really kind of bring out in, in a lot of people? Yeah, no, it's, it's funny you say that. I, I had a joke with my editor on the film. He would, he would always tell me, you know, Chris, you're, you're way too concerned with the fifth time viewer of this film. You know, you have to think more about the first time viewer. And because I would always, you know, as I was crafting it, sort of imagine, you know, the, the, the people that liked it and, and would watch it multiple times and, and wanting to sort of reward those people who were, you know, digging deeper and sort of putting Easter eggs throughout it. And, um, um, yeah, I mean, those, those are the kind of movies I love, you know, that where you, you get more and more and more as you watch it. And I think part of the way you encourage people to watch a film more than once, you know, like some people just won't like it and they never will. But for people that do like it, 
you know, we all like lots of movies, but some of them, even though we like them, we never go back and watch them again. But some of them, we go back over and over and watch them. And I think part of the way we encourage people to do that is by leaving a, a degree of ambiguity in the, the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if something, as an example, like The Sixth Sense, you know, as soon as you know, spoiler for anyone who's still living in 1999, but, you know, as soon as you know that Bruce Willis is a ghost at the end, the movie is is done. It's over. You know, you um, the mystery is solved completely. And you could go, of course, watch it again to see, oh, yeah, I see he was a ghost, but there's no more mystery to the movie. Whereas something, a film that doesn't give you all the answers at the end, a film that like deliberately leaves out a puzzle piece or two, that film lives forever in a way in your imagination because you're never given the exact answer to what happened. Yeah. And and so it just gives it a more of a life. And then you're always wanting to sort of go back and revisit it. And, you know, um, you know I'm sure uh, studio executives wanted Stanley Kubrick to explain the hell out of the end of 2001 rather than have this like poetic abstracts ending you know with the the man in the bed and all that but like that film lives forever because it's not wrapped up in a bow and explained perfectly at the end and the audience has to sort of use their own experience and their own imagination to sort of fill in the end so like that's something i i was conscious of with this film you know i it wouldn't have made sense if if everything got tied up in a bow at the end and like this let me just run down exactly what just happened and this is why this happened you know it's um uh, that would that would have just been the wrong kind of ending, and so I, it's deliberately left a little bit open ended, so that it you know, like hopefully like rewards people that keep going back and back to see it. I love watching films over and over as well, and I'm I'm pretty sure this one's going to be one of mine repeat viewings. And to me, it's kind of like a great prog rock record. You you know the main riff, but when you listen to them over and over, there's a new lick, there's a new something else happening that you kind of haven't picked up from the time before, and it creates it creates a new picture in your mind. And I think I really enjoy art like that, and especially what Flashback has as well. Um, yeah. I know that you've been working tirelessly over the years on projects that have not been seen the light of day to have flashback out there now releasing uh, next week for people to watch. What's that feeling like to have a product out there to talk about for people to see um, considering it's been such a long time since um, uh, the conspiracy came out as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I've said this before, but it's been a long labor for this film. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to have the baby born and, and get out of this hospital for sure. Um, yeah, you know, people ask, you know, like, why did you wait so long between your first and second film? And, you know, it's it's not a conscious thing. It's not something like, you know, what, I'm going to wait eight years. It's, yeah. you know, you don't always have control over these things. And I, um, you know, as I said, I think, you know, I have a whole bunch of films in the studio system. And, you know, these things are always getting either closer or further away from being made. And that was part of the reason I dusted off this script was because I, you know, after my first film, I, you know, I, I suddenly got some success in Hollywood and I got a, you know, agent and a manager and a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and then I'm, I'm start getting paid to write scripts for studios and, and everything's great, but the movies are not actually getting made. And, you know, and you, you can, you can live a comfortable life just having films in development in Hollywood, but you're not making movies, you know, and that's what it's all about. So that, that was part of the reason I, I got this, I made this film was because I got so sick of endlessly waiting for, you know, the bigger studio things to get made. Uh, and I was like, you know, I, I just, I need to make movies. I got to go make this other film. So I'm super glad I did. Of course, then we got hit with the pandemic right before we finished, mm-hmm. um, which threw everything into another uh, loop. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly, uh, 
relieved and, and happy that it's, you know, it's finally approaching its, its moment of birth, so to speak. And, and I, yeah, I can't wait to hear what people think about it. I, you know, so, so many people are, it's, it's a movie that I think is going to garner a lot of interesting responses. So it's, it's going to be fascinating to see. So for everyone listening across the US, June 4, select theaters and video on demand, flashback releases, also coming out later on on June 8 on Blu-ray, DVD and digital as well. I highly recommend this movie. It's one of my favorite films I've seen so far this year. Um, I can't wait to see it again. And Christopher McBride, I thank you very much for your time today. And again, congratulations with the movie. It's a great film and uh, you did a great job here. Thank you so much, Matt. A real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, man.